Today's reading is from Exodus 40, verses 20 to 37. It can be found on page 91 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark, attached the poles to the ark, and put the atonement cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain and shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and set out the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded him. Moses placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And Moses and Aaron and his sons used it to wash their hands and feet. They washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting or approached the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. The glory of the Lord. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we begin. God of grace, we uh, come into this room from all kinds of different places, uh, and most of us, in some way, seeking grace. And we're seeking grace in a very ungracious world. Some of us come with stuff that the world has thrown at us today, some baggage. Uh, events, maybe. Uh, maybe unloving behavior. Maybe just the quagmire of relationships that have not gone the way that we would have planned or would have set up our life. And so we sit with pain or, or grief or loss. Others of us come and uh, there might be a joy that is fresh and that is unusual and that we wondered if that could exist. And now we've seen you at work. We believe in your activity in our lives. You've answered prayer, perhaps. And others of us come maybe anesthetized by the comforts of life and uh, just wondering if we're ever going to have a sense spiritually that we wake up but still having a little bit of a desire to. Of course, we come from all kinds of different places. These are just some of them. And um, the truth is we're all similar and that we're more of a mess than we care to admit. Our lives fragmented and broken. And the stories of this book that we just read from tell us over and over again that you 
respond to brokenness and fragmentation by moving towards the mess and in fact taking it on yourself to restore relationships with you. Would you speak to us with that kind of transformative grace now as we reflect on this passage and in our lives as we go forth? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I watched this mini documentary put out by the New York Times this week about what it's like when a president visits New York City. So our current president has visited something like 23 times, the video says. And, um, and, then, and then they go into all the things that have to take place to, to kind of be prepared for the presence of the president. So here's all these different quotes I have here. So streets are shut down, garbage pails disappear, and plans are upended. Air traffic is diverted, much of it to faraway airspace like Chicago. One expert said, it's actually protection not from four sides, but from six sides, because you're thinking about above ground and below ground. Another person said, it's a multi-agency effort. The Port Authority Authority Police uh, are at the airport. The Department of Sanitation is removing garbage cans along the motorcade routes. The Postal Police are removing mailboxes from along the the route. Con Edison is there involved in looking in, in manhole covers. It's a huge operation. And um, the guess is it's described as being a, for sure, a million dollar a day effort. And as this little mini kind of article documentary video wraps up, the quote is, getting the president in and out of New York City is not something anyone's going to skimp on. Or getting in and out safely is not something anyone's going to skimp on. You know, I just, I want us to imagine for a second. Will you, will you go with me on this and just imagine that as part of a big visit like that, the president visits a city, that you somehow, because of your amazingness, you're selected to shake the president's hand. Uh, maybe something you did, or maybe just at random, you're selected. And so that's part, you're actually part of the day, but you're on the other side of the fences. You're on the other side of the barricades. You're on the other side of the curtain. You're allowed in. And you see all these things behind the scenes, and you get to see the president in action, and you've got all these kinds of things that you're just privy to because that day you were there with someone who's really a big deal, maybe bigger deal than you've ever, you know, anyone you've ever hung out with or been in the presence of. What would that do for you? What, what would that provide you? I'm guessing that would provide you days, if not weeks, of, of really just an emotional upswing, right? Like just mood improvement, shot in the arm. I mean... The sense of the things you saw and your brain's kind of going on all this stuff and the sense of being a part of something really big and cool and getting to see all the stuff that other people don't see and people are coming to you and they're asking you what you saw and what happened and you got stories to tell. I'm guessing something like that, yeah, get a couple weeks out of that, right? Before, you know, you're down in the dumps again. No, just kidding. Um, well, I had, you know, I had a little window into this kind of experience just last week when I was playing basketball at 24-Hour Fitness downtown by the K Street Mall, and it was just pick-up game at my normal gym, and in walks the NBA star on the Sacramento Kings, DeMarcus Cousins, and he just walks to the side, and while I'm playing, he's over there on the side, lacing up his shoes, getting ready to play, and then all of a sudden, the next game, I'm playing on the team against him. I mean, this guy who literally this week is with, you know, LeBron James and Kobe Bryant on the USA Select team or whatever. He's practicing with them, helping our Olympic team get really good. You know, I mean, this is who this guy is. He's just there all of a sudden. My jaw is just like on the floor. 
what is, I mean, what is he doing here? We're not good. I mean, any of us who are there, I mean, compared to him, he's like almost a foot taller than all of us. He's 6'11", the center for the kings, if you don't know. Anyway, so that, that provided me this days, really, of an emotional mood kind of upswing, you know. My wife, Lisa, would, would see me gazing off into the distance on the, on, the, on the couch, you know, not paying attention to my children's requests and so forth, and say, Mark, what are you thinking about? DeMarcus Cousins. Yeah. Again, I played basketball with him two days ago, you know. I don't know about you, but I, I think it's pretty common that we tend to think about having the presence of God in our life somewhat like that, that um, we should have this mood upswing, this emotional uh, excitement or vibrancy that would come if God would just sort of touch down in our lives once in a while, right? And, and then from my pastoral experience, from just meeting with many of you and people over the last uh, eight years, the, my sense is that the, there's this very common vibe coming often also from myself of how present really is God? And, is, and there's a lot of um, questioning and wondering, um, am I, maybe am I doing something wrong that I don't feel more of that, that I don't see more of that, and a lot of doubt that comes out of that. It, can God really be as present as I imagine maybe God could be in my life in some kind of way that is tangible and real and that I would feel? And so a lot of us walk around wanting more and maybe even attaching some feelings of inadequacy to that. Then we get to the end of um, the book of Exodus here, really just the last verses of this big book of Exodus, this grand story, and they actually end up giving us a lesson on the presence of God. And what we see is that it doesn't really address and doesn't really get at anything like what we sense in terms of some kind of emotional, occasional emotional upswing by God touching down. It's very different. You read these verses, and actually, I don't know what happened, but I somehow didn't send on the right number, and so we didn't even read the very last verse of the, of the whole book. We've been going through this series, and we skipped the very last verse. But listen to what it says. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. And you get this sense, right, of God is very present. And not only that, but they're on the move. The people of Israel are on the move in mission for God. They're, they're on this road and this journey that is very much directed by God. And he's very present, unmistakably present. And he's dictating and directing the whole thing. That's, that's what we're kind of shown about God's presence. Really, actually, the whole um, last 15 chapters of Exodus are preparing us for this moment when God's presence sort of touches down on the tent of meeting in this whole tabernacle area. Um, what's been happening is, <clears throat> in, this, in the book of Exodus, so the people of Israel, they were enslaved and serving Pharaoh. God delivers them out of that. There's these plagues. It's kind of the, um, the fireworks of the book of Exodus. There's these plagues and the um, special effects, and they're... Uh, against all odds, they're brought out. In fact, they're asked to leave, being the, the slave labor force of all of Egypt. But Pharaoh pushes them out and gets them to leave finally. And then their back goes up against the wall with the Red Sea, and they're delivered again. And it's a military victory because they go through the dry ground and the water crashes down on the soldiers of Pharaoh. And then God continues to deliver them from hunger with this stuff called manna and with water coming out of a rock in the middle of the desert. 
and God is delivering them. And so they're ready now. They've, they were serving Pharaoh. They were delivered, but it wasn't just freedom to be free and serve themselves. It was freedom now to serve God. And so now the instructions start to come. When you're reading, if you're reading the book of Exodus for the first time, you get around to about chapter 25 and you start to you know, you're, you're past the special effects phase of the book, and it's all these instructions for a worship center, for the tabernacle and the ark and all these kinds of things, and you just kind of start wanting to flip through a little fast if you're reading straight through. And in the midst of all these instructions for the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, there's a lot of talk about gold and silver and bronze, but a lot of talk about gold and how basically the Israelites are going to use the gold that, that the Egyptians just gave them and wished them well to get out of their country. They're going to use this gold to make a lot of these uh, worship furniture pieces that are in the tabernacle. And it's very symbolic. They're going to put their wealth into the, the center of their life where God is going to touch down. And their whole lives are going to orient around it, not just their gold and so forth, but that's like a symbol of everything's going to be put into this. And it's going to be at the center of their world as a group which is pretty amazing, but right in the middle of it, as Moses is, has been gone for 40 days up on a mountain, they start to get a little bit antsy and want to take matters into their own hands, and they think maybe things aren't going anywhere. And so what they do is they put all their gold into a golden calf. Maybe you've heard this story, right? At about chapter 32. So this is an extremely offensive thing that they've done. It's a giant black mark on their record that at the very time, I mean, the literature is, despite that it is all these instructions, you can't miss all their gold's going to go into God and his worship. No, they put all their gold over here into this golden calf. And they're, you know, worshiping this idol and calling that their God who got them out of Egypt. Very offensive to God. He's very angry. And what happens is only through the mediator Moses are they restored. Only through Moses' pleading with God not to abandon them. Because God proposes, hey, I'll just go with you, Moses, and we'll go. You were up on the mountain when all that idolatry was happening. No, Moses convinces, and, and suddenly the instructions pick up again. And then we get to where we are in this story today, where it's all finished. It's all completed. All those instructions actually get carried out by the Israelites, and God's presence then is sort of like, it, it's kind of like an air traffic control tower letting the words out, okay, cleared for landing, everything's done, and so God comes and touches down. It's sort of like a, a holding bay or a docking port or a home away from home, and God is now going to go with them on their journey. He's tangibly, consistently present. Does that sound good to you? God tangibly, consistently present in your life, on your journey. Well, let's, let's look a little bit more closely to this passage, and we're going to see just a few of the things we can learn then about, well, if that looks really good to us, what's involved in it? What's involved in knowing God's presence and having God's presence in your life? The first thing is that you need to trust a representative obedience. Now, I know that <clears throat> I know that the verses we started with, verses 20 through about 32, I know that they sound like some kind of article written in an ancient Near Eastern home furnishings magazine. 
Uh, did you catch the list? And then, you know, we're setting up the ark, and we're setting up this table, and we're setting up the basin, and it's kind of like, blah, blah, blah. You know, what, what are we supposed to get out of this? Actually, what's going on is it's a litany of the obedience of Moses. The obedience of Moses. And you can get a little more technical, and you can even see in the final five chapters of the book of Exodus, you've got 18 different references, including the ones we read, 18 different references to Moses accomplishing these instructions, and it's talked about as him obeying the commands of God. It's obedience. It's a litany of obedience. Now, I think a lot of us, when we think about obedience, we tend to, and this is just the common default drive of our hearts, we tend to think, okay, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to maybe obey God or try to obey God or try to do something that would be perceived as obedience to God. And the end result would be that someone, maybe God, would pat me on the back a little bit and say, nice work. You know, you're golden. You're good. You know, you, you know the phrase, you're golden. Like, like you got a bunch of change you hand over the counter f- to buy your taco and you say, did I, did I give you enough? And the cashier says, yeah, you're golden, boss. You know, I know. I, know, I just made that up. But you, you, you've, heard, you've heard this, you know, you're golden. You know, you do something, you're golden, you're good. You're in the clear. You've done enough. You've paid enough, right? To get the taco, no. To, you know, so, and I think a lot of us have that sense that if we, that's why we obey. And then God will maybe give you a backstage pass. You'll be welcome in, you know, behind the curtain. And you'll have that connection. But in this story, we have to realize that this, is, this whole section is about God's presence with his people, the Israelites. But it's totally not, it's very clear, it's not resting at all on their obedience. Because they, in terms of this story, they still have this black mark, this stain on the relationship of the golden calf. And so Moses has this function in the relationship as offering a sort of representative obedience. And you can tell as you read this, and if you even kind of get a sense of some of the measurements and the size, Moses wasn't doing this alone. He needed a lot of help to carry these things and move them around. There's some seriously heavy objects that we're being told Moses just does and just lays it over there. It's, he wasn't doing it alone, but we're told, we're, it's talked about. Is God seeing this people through the eyes of the obedience of Moses who wasn't down there with the golden calf, who at the time was up with God at the top of the mountain. Now, okay, so if you're like one of these Bible nerds a little bit like I am, you'll say, well, but, you know, Moses wasn't perfect. And that's true. Moses wasn't golden. We know that in the bigger sense. But here, there is something larger being pointed to, something universal, something that connects with all of us. The sense that we, every single one of us, on our own, is not golden. Not going to get that pat on the back from God. We all need to grapple with our need for a representative obedience that really only God can provide. I love the way, I think I've even shared this before, I love the way that um, Christian psychologist Mark McMinn, in his book, Why Sin Matters, he writes this, Uh, He recounts a story about meeting a young woman in his church who had recently come to Christ. He says, She described her childhood in a home where self-esteem was the primary virtue. Her parents taught her that she was delightful, talented, good-hearted, intelligent, and witty. Having spent several months with her in a small group, I tended to agree with her parents. But as she talked about her spiritual awakening, she acknowledged that something important was missing from her incubator of childhood self-esteem. Somehow, deep down, she always knew that she was not quite as great as her parents thought she was. 
She knew that there was an intrinsic need for healing, an inner darkness, a moral decay, which was also part of her character. I think all of us have to stop and think about that if we haven't before and at some point kind of come to terms with the way in which our hearts are not golden as much as we wish they were, as much as we fight against it. There's something there. There's Maybe you resonate with some of these terms, you know, an inner darkness, a decay. What, you know, there's something there no matter how religious you are. You're never going to get those words to come in response to your actions. Oh, you're golden now. You're in. You need representative obedience. In fact, it's a great exercise in your spiritual life if you just kind of stop amidst your attempts to, to your spiritual exercises, your spiritual disciplines, whatever you might do, whatever good deeds you might consider is coming out of your faith, and just kind of stop and look at it. Do a little self-assessment. Why am I doing this? Is there any sense in which I'm kind of saying, maybe if I do this, I'll get that pat on the back. I'll get accepted. Am I obeying in order to get accepted? Or has the representative uh, obedience come to root myself in God's grace? And any obedience just flows right out of that with joy. In a sense, I'm accepted, and then I obey. And that leads very nicely to the second point as we reflect on this passage about like God's presence in your life. Truly, you need to truly believe that you've been made acceptable. Following this uh, theme of the tabernacle through the Bible, you get this incredible thing. In John chapter 1, verse 14 It sounds like this, the the word, Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. You may have even heard this, a very common thing to point out. The word for dwelled among us is the Greek word for tabernacled. It's like a verb of the noun that of all this construction that Moses is doing in Exodus. So you follow this trend of God in, in scripture and you, and you see this kind of come alive now all of a sudden through Jesus. God is so persistent to be present with unacceptable people that he comes in and visits in tabernacles now in human form through Jesus. And somehow through that, he makes unacceptable people become acceptable. It's a huge transition. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, let's look at another clue. Another New Testament uh, emphasis here. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus, that same Jesus, the word made flesh who tabernacled with us, it says this at his death. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple curtain the one that mirrored and that was already kind of foreshadowed with the curtain that separated the most holy place in the tent of meeting that moses was constructing you mean that area where god touches down in his footstool the ark with its golden uh, cherubim and seraphim and the wings touching in the middle that footstool of god god's holy place that no one enters except under the most perfect of conditions the temple the access to that, 
the barricade to that, the fences to keep you out, ripped, torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus breathed his last on the cross. Comes even more alive in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. I think Moses would have blushed at all of this sense of just how quickly and broadly through Jesus it's the, the most holy place of God's presence is opened up to unacceptable people. Verse uh, 19 of Hebrews 6, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever. Did you catch the words in there? Anchor, hope, firm, secure, Think about those words. Stop and think about your faith. Do those words get anywhere close to describing your faith? Uh, your sense of how connected you can be to God? How secure that is? How firm that is? Do you have any of that kind of certainty that's described here in Hebrews chapter 6? Or maybe like I think most people, you're still in some sense desiring instead or just maybe by your default mode you're going back to the days of moses where woe is me and the cloud comes down and moses himself isn't even a let in at that moment when god's presence touches down the bible says basically even though we journey through this life wrestling over and over with issues of acceptability in belonging. Do I belong with God? The Bible says dramatically, improves it dramatically through Jesus. Believe it. You've been welcomed in. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Your forerunner went in. This is the, this is the gospel. This is the whole reason we're here. This is the most secure thing ever. This is firm. Walk with it. Wake up with it. Live with it. God just keeps showing us over and over. He's persistent that he makes unacceptable people like you and me acceptable, valid, valued. You belong with God. So trust, representative obedience. Believe you've been made acceptable. And third, allow God to have some space. It's actually a very simple, logical point. Allow God to have some space. One of the scholars uh, that comments on the book of Exodus he says it very simply, and, and yet it's very profound. God actually takes up space in Israel's world. It takes up space. It takes a lot of work and energy and a lot of carving out for the tabernacle to be built and maintained. And they're in the desert on the road, and they have to reset and break camp and tear it down and build it back up. I mean, some of you are on uh, one of the either set-up set teams or takedown teams for what we do here. I mean, this is already a building in place, and you're going, whoa. If, I mean, if you knew some of the kind of plans and the things they had to set up here everywhere they went, you'd just be exhausted thinking about it. Um, there's just a simple concept that it actually takes space when you welcome God's presence into your life. Um, but we know, and this is a firm, hard thing that maybe you're even thinking, but don't we, you know, you, you might say, but Mark, we don't, we don't 
do a bunch of work and setting up. And that, that isn't the thing that then says, snap, now God will be present in your life. That's, in a sense, getting it backwards. That's some of the works righteousness stuff that we've just been talking against. And that's true. It's not your preparations. I mean, because of Christ, it's not your preparations that mean, oh, now God will, you know, grace you with his presence. And that is just a fact. It just flows out of the idea of God's presence. It'll take space in your life. Space is going to be required if God moves in. And this, of course, leads in all kinds of directions. I mean, I could try to make some kind of exhaustive list about the kinds of things in your life that God, if his presence is stronger, it might push this out or push that out. And some of you would love such a list. But, you know, what? the problem with that list is that the thing you're hoping that wouldn't be on it would be on it. So there's your application, right, as we come to a close. Um, what happens is not just, it's not just time. It's not just preparation. It's not just routines. It's, it's even space. It's where we're, putting, uh, where we're putting our stuff and our gold and our time and our space currently. What's important to us? What's at the center of our life that we revolve around? So that the person who's been in, this long, in the journey of faith for a very long time and is experienced in this starts to say, you know what? Basically, it came down to many points in my life just having to yield to God's direction in my life and, and pray a prayer like, you know what, God? There's five things that I hope you won't push out of my life in order for you to be more central. Or maybe there's just two or maybe there's one. But at this moment, I'm going to lay it all out and say, I want your presence so badly. Push out whatever is needed so that I might move on your mission from here on out with you at the center of my life. Let's pray that that would be true of us in our church. Dear God, um, these words may strike us in a number of different ways. Maybe for us it gets to the issue of time and space. It's a simple equation of how much room in our life is there for all these different things and also to add you on top of it. But maybe also it gets down to some of those underlying beliefs, rewiring how we pursue obedience and how we ima- what we imagine we might do to earn your favor or maybe just having such a hard time believing the truth that you have 100% definitively made us acceptable through Jesus Christ. Whatever it may be, walk with us and help us because we need your help. We ask for your Holy Spirit to join us and lead us as we attempt to journey more faithfully with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.